Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. There are some genre tropes that are ubiquitous in fantasy, from the ensemble quest to overthrowing a dark lord. Magical schools are yet another trope we have come to know and love. Whether you are a fan of early narratives like Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea, or appreciate the darker elements of more contemporary entries such as The Magicians or Ninth House, there's no denying the popularity of this particular fantasy subgenre. In a departure from her previous novels, Naomi Novik's new book, A Deadly Education, is set in a magical school. So we were very excited to talk to Naomi about her take on this fantasy trope. Now, I'm sure you are all very familiar with Naomi, but in case any of our listeners have been living under a rock for the last few years, would you please introduce yourself to them? Hello, everyone. I'm Naomi Novik. Um, I started writing professionally. I started writing as a fanfic writer, actually, back in the dark mists of time, and uh, then started writing professionally with the Temeraire series, which came out in 2006. And that's that was sort of Dragons in the Napoleonic Wars. And after writing nine books of that, I wrote the books Uprooted and Spinning Silver, which are not I don't like to think of, I don't really think of them as fairy tale retellings. I think of them as conversations with fairy tales, uh, which is what I generally think of all my writing as, a conversation with, with stories that I already love. And most recently, I started writing this trilogy, the Scalamonts trilogy, which is, you know, as you were saying, about a, a very mean magical school. And in my copious free time, I've, uh, I founded the Organization for Transformative Works and uh, helped build the Archive of Our Own, which is one of my, still one of my, my uh, personal most loved triumphs, I would say. Oh my God, I don't think I've realized that. That is extremely cool. <laughs> I love Archive. Yes, no, you know, because I came out of that fanfic, I came out of the fanfic community myself, and I hugely loved it and valued it. And I was, in fact, working on a computer science degree. And so I was going to be a programmer. And when I, it, it actually, it all sort of happened roughly at the same time that I switched, I switched from working um, in programming and made writing my profession. And then all of a sudden I had spare brain for programming and it dovetailed really nicely with, with, I feel like what we all recognized in our community was the need for an archive of our own, a place that we actually owned the servers and could host our, our content and share it with each other without sort of being beholden to media companies. Oh, that is wonderful totally welcome tangent there because it's where I go uh, <laughs> I get really obsessed with certain video games and then have to have extra content yes yes exactly okay so shall I be the one that's uh being the the taskmaster bringing us back on topic all right <laughs> somebody needs to do it <laughs> yeah and it, it falls to me that's fine so your new book as we've mentioned is set in a school of magic you know since Harry Potter Magical schools and stories have rocketed in popularity. 
but what attracted to you as a setting like what did you want to write about that particular setting or did the story you want to tell end up just fitting into magical school sort of tropes uh no, so when I when I write, I never really have a plan. I don't have a an a mission that I start out with. Generally, I find the mission after I've written the book and then I look at it and I'm like, "Ah, that's what I was doing in this one. How clever of me." And with A Deadly Education, the way it basically started was I uh of course now I have to reconstruct how it started because I wrote the first 15,000 words of it in 2016. So, and that's usually what I do, that I sort of queue up the next book. I usually have the next thing waiting in line while I'm still working on on one thing because procrastination is, is an excellent form of uh, creativity. And I sort of started basically writing this scene, um, the very first scene of the book with my heroine, Galadriel, um, in, in, her, in her awful little dorm room. Uh, in the Scalamance, yelling at at Orion Lake. And it sort of brought together ideas that I had and had gained from the questions, I would say, really, that had risen, that had risen from reading all the other wonderful boarding school magic books that I love and mingled together with a, uh, an old folk legend because the Scalamance is not my own invention. The Scalamance is a legend that uh, it appears in uh, Dracula. Uh, Bram Stoker mentions it as a place that Vlad Dracula um, studied and that it was, there's this Eastern European legend of this dark school of magic where students would go and gain a tremendous sort of secrets and the price for this school was that at the end, there would be 10 of them allowed to study. And when they left, the devil would take the hindmost and the devil would take the last graduate and uh, and keep their soul in payment for everybody else's education. So that was the price. You had to essentially gamble your own soul in exchange for dark power. And it was really kind of a combination of those questions that come from so many of the classic uh, magic school books like Harry Potter, where very often magic is free and you sort of wonder why. And the, the you know, Hogwarts, everybody goes seems to go to Hogwarts. Nobody seems to have to pay to go to Hogwarts. There's It doesn't quite seem large enough for the entire magical wizarding population. Um, there are all these sort of questions that that are not important really in Harry Potter, but that provided seeds for me to, to kind of explore. And that's, that's really sort of how it developed. Well, I wanted to ask about the fact that it says very clearly on the front of A Deadly Education, book one. And when we join Galadriel and Orion and all of their friends, they are one year away from graduation. So you basically follow them throughout the year leading up to the graduation of the seniors before them. And I kind of looked at it and went, well, you know what? Next year, they're kind of going to graduate. And I kind of feel like there's only going to be book two. But with these with these stories that are set in magical boarding schools, you kind of expect them to go on for, you know, like three, four, five, six. So, you know, have you got any idea about how that's going to happen? Is it going to be seven books, you know, are they going to end up coming back as teachers or how is it going to play out? So uh, there are no teachers in the Scalamans, and 
I don't want to spoil things, but it is a trilogy. In fact, it was originally going to be a duology, but you know, when I was writing the first book, I thought it was going to end where book two, in fact, now ends. And I wrote most of the book, absolutely sure that that's where I was going. And then one morning I woke up and had a scene almost completely fully in my head and I wrote it and I realized, oh, that's the last scene of this book. And then I had to call up my editor and say, actually, I need to write you three books instead of two. But, you know, for me, having written a nine book, a nine book series, I don't actually like writing the series, I, I decided, because when a book is published, it means that you can't, you can't go back and change what you've published in order to land the story, the completed story at the end. And in fact, when I first went to my editor with, with the, the Scalamont's books, I basically said up front, you're going to have to let me write these two books from start to finish. And when I'm done with both of them, then we'll publish them as two separate books. But I wanted to write the whole thing together. And then you might say, well, why didn't you just write it as one book? I wanted, you know, one of the things that I really like about the magic boarding school trope is not so much that it covers years and years um, or anything like that. I like the the rhythm of the school year. I like the punctuation that happens for the characters in their lives. It's a rhythm that we all are familiar with. If we are in school ourselves, if we have friends or children in school, if we even if we have are long since out of school, we're still familiar with that rhythm of the year and we often live around that rhythm in our modern lives. And we all have that story, that that kind of narrative in our head, that idea of the school year has ended, that it's a it's a changing over, it's a place of of stepping up, it's a place of sort of looking back. And I like the power of that in a story. And I didn't, I, it's not that I wanted, I didn't want to write sort of like seven books or five books or, or, you know, all the way through a high school career. I'm not interested in cleaving to a trope that strongly. I, I will not, I don't want to spoil book two and where it ends, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel the need to keep them uh, keep them in the school and and do every year of school and that's the end of the story and that's the that's the that's the full shape of the story. What I wanted was the school year rhythm and that that feeling um, that we all kind of can plug into. Mm. Yes, because it's not really the same in the sense of. I mean, for example, they're in they're in the school and it's extremely perilous and horrible and you know, just as bad or maybe worse than leaving school and finding yourself suddenly stranded in the adult world, maybe slightly unprepared for this. So I think that's what I really appreciate about the book that, you know, you, we call the magical school a trope. But what you've been saying is you're actually taking the rhythms of this trope and kind of and using those rather than the structure of the kind of, you know, as if we take Harry Potter as an example, the seven year school year where, you know, Harry grows increasingly, kind of increasingly, 
I suppose, mature until you get to the seventh book and then suddenly there are no teachers, there are no safety nets, you're all on your own. So I quite like the fact that you've kind of stripped all of that safety out to even begin with. I always feel like Hogwarts is very, like, quite, and I know they go on a lot of deadly adventures, but it's quite a safe place. You know, it's cosy. And this book throws you right into this terrifying institution that is absolutely the opposite of a cosy boarding school. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, And of course, part of that grew out of the conversations that I've had with, with mom friends. You know, it's like responsible mothers do not send their children to Hogwarts on, uh, you know, you sort of feel like I might have some some questions about the the uh, safety and health practices at this school where where people are, you know, left and right being petrified and uh, and and having their their arms clawed by uh, hippogriffs and in sort of in a, in that, which obviously, you know, from a U.S. perspective, right, you're like somebody would have sued the ass off this school five seconds after um, after after it opened. And that and that's a joke. Right. That's a, that's a sort of fanish fanish joke that you might have that I sort of started thinking about more seriously for for the Scholomonts, which is that the Scholomonts is so terrible and I wanted it to be a terrible place, a place of real danger where you had to make a, a constant effort to survive and you were truly besieged all the time. Partly because that is, of course, the the amplification of the high school experience of many, many people, right? That that I think every most adolescents uh, have that experience. Most of us have that experience within us. Whether or not an outside observer would feel that way, that we do feel ourselves slightly besieged uh, growing up, trying to create the parameters of who we are as people. And, and so th- I wanted that amplification, that extreme amplification. And then th- that, in a way, shaped a lot of the world building, because then the question is, why the hell does anybody send their kids here? Why why does anybody come here? And the answer very quickly and clearly had to be because it's much worse on the outside, which then drove almost almost everything, the structure of the school, the architecture of it, the designs, the, um, you know, all the world building really kind of evolved from that, from that foundation. You were talking about it being more grim on the outside. And obviously the Skullmance is a really scary place to be. But I kind of got to the end, and I know it's a stupid thing given everything that happens in the book, but I got to the end and I went, they haven't got a summer holiday. And that really struck me as something that was so different to, like you say, Harry Potter and to other things. It is once they're in there, they are stuck in there, and they don't even get that respite of knowing that they can come home. And I think that that takes what you were talking about, the rhythm of the school year, and just knocks it a little bit of kilter and just gives you this idea that adds on to the peril that not only is it really terrible at this, but unlike Hogwarts, you don't get to go home and be protected by a, a blood promise for all this time. That You were just stuck there. And the fact that poor L doesn't get any post either is you know, just yet another thing that builds on her and made me think, oh, that's just got to be really, really tough. Yeah, you know, it was one of those things where I initially, when I started writing, I expected there to be um, a summer holiday. And I, I sort of had it in the back of my head that at some point I would get to a summer holiday and I'd have to figure out what was happening. And as I went on, I realized 
very quickly that no, it makes no sense. You, no, you don't leave for summer holiday. The whole point of the school as I had created and defined it was that it's so dangerous for wizard children on the outside that they have to be put into this terrible place for four years, essentially, to give them a chance to grow up without getting eaten by monsters. So no, you don't bring your kid home for the holidays and, you know, roll the dice on whether they turn into the blue plate special. Uh, you, you leave them in school because you are doing this essentially for their survival in the first place. You would never send your child to this horrible place to begin with if it weren't sort of actively better than the outside. And, and so I realized that I didn't get to have, I didn't get to have a summer holiday. And in fact, you know, as you're saying this, I, I rarely remember what my pro I rarely remember sort of specific process moments, but you know how I was sort of saying that I wrote that scene that was the end of book one. And I realized it was the end of book one. I think those two things might've happened at the same time that I wrote that scene and writing that scene was when I realized, Oh, they, they can't have summer holidays. They don't go out. They never leave the school. They stay in the school for all four years. And I think that may have driven what happened in that scene at the end of the school year and and shaped it. Yeah, I must admit, I got to the last page and I was just winding down from all the tension you built up. And then that last line and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I actually don't deliberately set out to write cliffhangers. I, I don't sort of believe in cliffhangers in a fundamental sense. But I think probably because I was writing towards that punctuation, and I wanted in my head, I wanted that punctuation moment at the end of the year, uh, that moment that sort of shifts things and moves you onto a different level, that when I wrote the line, I wrote the last line of this book. And the same thing happened actually with book two, which is best of the even a worse cliffhanger. I, I apologize in advance. Um, but I, I wrote it and I looked at it. I was just like, that's the last line. I'm done. I, I, that, that has to be it. And when I have that feeling, you know, you don't always get that as a writer. You don't always get the the thing where you write the scene and you put down the last line and you're like, that's the last line. But when you do, you have to listen to it. It's, you, you know, it's sort of, you can't, you can't give up. You can't give up the magic that comes to you unasked. That has to, you have to respect it. You've mentioned a couple of times that like you had a kind of conversation and you were reacting to this subgenre of magical schools, like when you built the story and how it came to be. And one thing I've noticed in sort of the magical school stories that have come before, they often had male characters, you know, Harry Potter, Wizard of Earthsea, The Magicians, Name of the Wind, you know, these sorts of stories, they, they focus around a male protagonist. And I wondered if you felt that there was anything particular about having a female protagonist or, and central character is, is changing or interacting with the tropes of this genre in a different way. I, absolutely. You know, I, I think obviously the boarding school trope gets mashed up with the chosen one trope, right? In fairly regular patterns, because, you know, it, it makes sense when you think about it, right? You've got this character who's sort of who, who's going through, you want your central character, you want to see this character progress through the school and change. And it makes sense for that character to then be kind of this significant character in the larger world of the, of the story and the, the larger scale 
um, outside the school. Because of course, right, the implication of school is that school is preparing you for something, that school is trying to fit you for some work that you are meant to do. Obviously, I have kind of the chosen one. Orion Lake is is the guy who should who, who's the protagonist in the in the other stories, right? He is the chosen one, but at the same time, going at it, coming at him, coming at the chosen one, and foregrounding someone who, in fact, would be his antagonist in in the classic trope version of the narrative, and, and making that antagonist be a, a woman, a girl. It allows you to sort of engage with the chosen one narrative, the chosen one trope in interesting ways, the same way that I'm trying to engage and and have conversations with the magic school trope. Because, you know, the chosen one trope, as soon as you start thinking about it, well, who's doing the choosing, right? That That's kind of the big question of the chosen one. Who has chosen? Who has chosen this person? And what is their involvement in that? What does that make of them? Are, are they choosing to? Do they get to choose? What happens if they fail? To, what if they choose something else? What if they refuse to kind of go along with their destiny? What if they misunderstand their destiny? I really wanted to come at it from the side, from the, from the antagonist position, really. And also just general, I mean, I love the, friend, the enemies to friends trope. I, I feel like that's that itself is also just something that I straight up love no matter what. And so I really loved having Orion and Elle um, be at loggerheads and then, and then move through it to sort of a more interesting, more complicated relationship. And, and also I just loved Elle, you know, I, I, I don't sort of deliberately pick my protagonist, but it felt absolutely clear to me as soon as I started writing that Elle was, was a girl. And that was, affecting and did affect in many ways her experience and the comparison of her experience to Orion's experience is very much one of the things that I was most interested in you know I think that resonates quite well for us also as people who have experienced schools because I think everybody who has had an absolutely miserable experience in school knows somebody else who had an absolutely wonderful experience in school and sort of looks back at it with nostalgia and vice versa, that even though you're in the same physical location, in the same classes, the same, ex- the same experience in many, many ways on an everyday basis, it becomes a different experience for each of you, completely individualized because it's coming in through you. So it shouldn't be the same place. The Skull of Months should not feel the same and should not be the same experience for all the characters. Uh, and and I wanted to see it from Elle's perspective, from the perspective of somebody who wasn't the chosen one and who wasn't the classic sort of foregrounded character. Elle the Malfoy of uh, to Orion's um, Harry is total. I didn't see it that way. And I think that's extremely cool, you know, the idea of writing it mm-hmm. from an antagonist's perspective, because course as we know there's a massive fan base for Malfoy anyway being the protagonist no, of his own no, story no no not at all what what, what? no I've <laughs> no one no one has ever has ever written fanfic from you know Draco's perspective at all or anything like that 
no, and certainly no one uh, amongst us would be no, interested no. in such a thing. Yes. You know, one of the things actually that I quite like about Harry Potter is the Draco Malfoy narrative because precisely because it kind of it kind of goes off the rails, right? In that at the beginning, Draco is clearly meant to be just this sort of he's just he's just like this 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 ass. He's he's just like unpleasant and uh, just he's clearly like he's the villain with a capital V. You know, it's like stick the stick the like sign on his head, flashing lights, bully, bad guy, yuck. And that goes on. But of course, at a certain point in the narrative, right, Rowling needs to pivot to the actual danger on the larger scale, which is Voldemort, who is a different kind of evil that you know, she wants it, to, she wants to be more threatening, more absolute, like she wants to amp up Harry's opponents, because she wants Harry to grow. And that's, and obviously, that's a classic technique that that, you know, many a supervillain, many a superhero movie uses as well. And yet she sort of so she lets Draco grow in certain ways. And then she kind of sort of needs to almost shove him to the side, he can't be the villain anymore. So he essentially becomes a sort of failed villain. And he, he's a villain who doesn't actually have the courage of his evil convictions. He, you know, he kind of, he kind of is like, actually, I don't, I, it turns out I, I, I don't really want to, want to join in the world domination plan. And can I, can I get off this? Can I get off the evil bus now in ways that she doesn't really give the airtime that I, I wanted it to have in the, in the books, which obviously is wonderful for me as a, as a fanfic writer. And then obviously just as an original writer in that that's the sort of thing where I'm like, ah, there's, there's story here. There's, there's story. And then there are Hills and, and you start sort of pickaxing at it. the antagonist who's not actually like the big supreme villain with the big pointy evil hat of, of badness on, on their head. So you were talking a lot about Harry Potter obviously being the chosen one and Malfoy being his uh, antagonist um, and a lot of sort of nostalgia looking back on these kind of things. But I was actually thinking how in the book, and I don't think it's a spoiler to give it away, but Elle is her own kind of chosen one, but she's very much the evil chosen one. And it reminded me a little bit of, I don't know if you've read it, but Anna Smith Sparks trilogy, where the narrative basically sets up the the villain and the, the sort of the son of a demon as being the hero of it. And he is your protagonist that you follow through and you kind of root for it. And I felt like it was the same for Elle because she sort of is the chosen one and I really rooted for her, but she was also kind of bad. I know she's trying not to be bad, but I just thought that was a, a really interesting idea to kind of look at it from what would be an antagonist point of view and like almost doing the Draco Malfoy, but gender swapped. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, the other piece, right. Of the chosen, of the chosen one trope, which is, you know, both, yes, L and Orion are both in their way chosen ones. And one of the things that, uh, I was really quite enjoying and exploring is, you know, so Orion in a way is a chosen one who sort of embraced his supposed destiny in certain ways. And L is sort of the chosen one who's like, no, I don't want this destiny. Uh, I don't want what you've chosen for me. I'm going to choose for myself. And then the question is, can you escape? Can you escape that destiny? 
what is that destiny? Where does that come from? Because, you know, just take a step back, right? There is a destiny that all of these children are essentially either trying to hold onto, trying to keep, or trying to escape, which is the destiny of who gets to survive, who gets to live. And the kids who come in with privilege and power and stored up mana and wealth and community and resources behind them that the quote-unquote loser kids can't access and don't have. They very much like that they are destined they are destined to come out and be masters of the universe in a certain way. That is a destiny that they are all quite happy to embrace for the most part without without really engaging with it. And that's the that's the chosen one that that's the sort of the the more subtle version of the chosen one trope which is that we are we are born not with a prophecy describing how our life is going to go but in fact we are born with many things that shape our lives that are in fact out of our control and what does it mean to try and escape that destiny and what are the forces that you have to marshal do you want to marshal those forces and that was again another part of what excited me about about writing L and writing this this story that I was just sort of trying to think throughout what it would be like you know in a way L comes in and she has the power to make herself one of these powerful enclavers she has ambitions of doing that but she, she in fact deeply resents in some ways that her mother did not get her that power when she could have and did not get her that security as a child. And yet then she has to actually confront the choice herself and making the choice for herself. And that's a moment. I think that is a moment of growing up. That's a moment of, of adulthood of responsibility that is really complicated and fun and naughty to, to sort of dive into as a writer. Yeah, you were talking about like unequal opportunity there, about how people, clearly everyone comes from very different walks of life. And, you know, we've obviously we've been talking about privilege very much, like that's been, you know, a hot topic in, you know, in, in many, not just the book yeah. world and across the whole world um, lately. Um, and it just, it was just occurring to me because I'm not quite as far into the book as um, Charlotte, but it's already occurring to me that the things that Elle has to fear most is rather than the mouths and the, the, the dastardly creatures, it seems to be more her fellow students and their machinations and the, the petty rivalries and the prejudices that people bring in. Because, I mean, you've, you explore some prejudice that she has already experienced in her, in her young life um, and, and meeting that on the inside and bringing, you know, seeing people bringing that inside, you know, a very, very dangerous institution where they're all locked up together. I feel like we are seeing, this is a place like a, a crucible where we can see the very best of humanity, but also the very worst of humanity. Right. And, and that is very much what I wanted to do. You know, that's very much the story that I kind of wanted to explore. I wanted to see L essentially, I do think that it's it's a question that is in my mind as the mother of a child who who is quite privileged and where I am privileged as a mother to be able to give my child certain things. 
And there's ways in which the world really quite encourages you not to think about it. And that's one of the things that I liked with the Scalamonts is this idea that you, uh, you know, the architecture of the school, it's all about hidden places and secrets and, you know, dark spots. It's not sort of wide open halls. It's, it's sort of frightening. And there's things that are unexpected. And the shape of the school itself is different for different people who have less power and privilege. It, it offers, it has, it gives you a different face and that the people who are, it afflicts the afflicts, afflicted and comforts the comfortable um, in, in that classic way that, that invites being smashed, that invites being, being broken and engaged with angrily. And then in turn, that, that sort of asks different questions that, you know, what does that mean? What, what do you gain by doing it? How can you actually engage with this in a meaningful way? How, how do you actually make justice out of this, out of this situation? And there, I, I don't actually have answers because if I had answers, I, I feel like I would, I would have a much, I, I would, I would uh, be in a higher pay grade in the world, but I do feel like I wanted to look at it and think about it and ask questions of it. So our preconceived notion of pedagogy is that teachers teach and guide and students learn and misbehave. Yet the Scholomance has no teachers. So what led you to this rather radical decision? And how did it change your idea of how the students would live and learn within your world? So actually, the fact that there were no teachers in the school was one of the early things because, you see, I, I mentioned that the Scalamonts itself is an old folk legend. And the legend, as I first encountered it, which was in an old uh, Time Life book uh, that I found in my middle school library when I was about 10 years old, it basically said that the students, there were no teachers and there were no books. Students would ask their questions and the answers would appear in front of them in letters of flame in the dark. And that is such a vivid image to me. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the root of the void, of the magic void that appears in the book. And because of that, because I had that in my mind from the beginning, it also connected up to the rest of the idea, the, the idea that the students are desperately trying to find survival here. And also from the experience, uh, you know, an experience that I had from sort of passed on from my family, the idea of taking education as as a thing that you can rebel against as a child is is itself a very privileged position to be in you know my parents where where my father grew up uh, in particular if you didn't basically have a 4.0 it meant you didn't get to go to university and his his younger sister had had a perfect had perfect scores and then somebody sabotaged her scores in order to get their own child. This was an anti-Semitic act, actually, because they were Jews and her grades were, were basically sabotaged uh, somehow so that she was going to be denied a place in university, was not going to be able to go on to medical school. And essentially, uh, my grandmother, his, his mother, uh, had to bribe people to fix it. So that is, you know, what that's the kind of story about education that lives, that, that lives in my own family experience. And so, so in this case, right, the students desperately need the knowledge that they are being offered in their classes. 
they have to have that knowledge in order to survive, to graduate. At the same time, they have to massively ration the amount of energy that they give to their to this busy work of school. You know, they need to learn the material. They really need to not spend too much time on the papers because, you know, so it's that constant complicated balance that all of them are, are struggling. They're all struggling to find a niche and they don't really need motivation from teachers. You know, you don't, I don't think you need some, you don't need to externalize pun, the, the punishment and the threat uh, has been externalized to monsters that are going to eat your face. And I feel like that's really quite motivating. I think that that, that would probably be the, the enough of a motive for people to make it through their schoolwork. If it's what stands between you and being dinner that day. I quite like the, the idea of how, you know, education is, is about the knowledge to survive because although it might be on a different level, we're not quite up against quite literal monsters, but it kind of is because, you know, as you say, those of us who are privileged enough to get a good education to go to university, we are already at a level where it's much easier for us to survive in the world. Yeah, it's quite an interesting way to to look at education and to highlight the importance of it. Education, especially when I was growing up, was still, you know, touted as the the equalizer. It was the social mobility right? The root of social mobility here in the US, at least specifically, where where that's increasingly people are sort of recognizing that, yeah, it doesn't really work. You know, it works, it works on sort of like isolated individual cases, but it's not, it's not actually functioning that way as a systematic pathway. Uh, and that, you know, is that actually an accident? Is that, or, or is that part of the way the system is designed? Uh, and that's that's more broadly, you know, obviously the Skolomonts is a system and all of the children in a way are in that system involuntarily. Some of them are benefiting from it and some of them are not and some of them are being hurt by it. But in a way, they're all they're all stuck in it. They don't get to choose what system they get to be in. I was thinking back to what Lucy said about Harry Potter, where Hogwarts is kind of a safe space. And I know it's taking a jump sideways, but as a mother of a a young girl, we've been reading The School of Good and Evil, sorry, The School for Good and Evil. And I quite like that in comparison to your Skullman series, because in Harry Potter, you very much got the idea that everybody in Hogwarts banded together and that it was the outside world that was going to get you. And there is an element to that in the Skullmance, but I kind of feel like you were saying it's the case of if you don't get the good grades or if you don't pay attention, the monsters will come out and eat your face. And the School of Good and Evil is, again, pitting students against each other. And I think that's perhaps something within education and society that we don't always address. It's all sort of fixated on the exams and how you get out into the real world. But actually, sometimes school and your peers can be just as brutal as any outside threat awaiting you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, right. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, <laughs> I, I, I sort of occasionally think back to, to Sartre, right. Which is, the, you know, no exit, like hell is other people. And, uh-huh. and uh, that's, I think that hell or heaven is other people, right. That that's the, the thing that, that having community, having connection, which is what Elle of course does not have. She does not have community. She has no friends. She has, she is isolated 
she is isolated outside. She, she has, she does not have the outer world resources. She does not have the inside the school resources. And that position is such a vulnerable, frightening, difficult place to be in. And, and I think that that's, that is something, you know, that, that really just shapes her experience. If anyone of you uh, has not already bought the book or pre-ordered the book or is planning to read the book, we have Numi here basically there to say, why should you go out and read it? Because it's really good fun. But here we go. I will let the author speak for herself. Oh, wow. Uh, So I, you know, I write, when I write, um, I write primarily for myself and I like this book. So, um, so you should, you should try it. I think that it's, it was a lot of fun to live in this world. And, you know, as a writer, you write different kinds of worlds and different kinds of stories. I felt as I was writing this book, that this was a world that people could get fanish about, that this was a world that people could, not that, not that people haven't been fanish about my other worlds as well, but just that this is a world that really invites you to imagine living in it and what you would do or what, or, or to invent your own sort of characters in it to sort of, to feel it and to imagine it as, as being bigger than the book. And I love that myself. That's something that I'm always looking for when I, when I watch a new show, when I pick up a new book, is this, is this a world that I get to keep after I've closed the, after I've closed the covers? And so if I, if I had to, if I had to pick one way to sell, to sell the book, that's what I would say, that uh, come, come into the Scalamonts with me and have a really great time being hunted by monsters that want to eat. (laughs) (laughs) And having your face eaten. (laughs) I kind of want to know which was your favourite face eating monster that you enjoyed creating the most, because they're all radically different. Oh, I mean, the maw mouth. The mom out. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's not my favorite in that it's a little too. I, I believe in it a little too much, and it was a. It's a little too terrible. So I don't know that it's that it's my favorite in a certain sense. But it. I, I think that it's it's the best one. I think the mom out. The mom out is a real thing. The mom out is true, and that's that's something as a writer that I'm always always trying for trying to trying to put something on the page that is true, even though it is fictional. That is a great place to wrap up, actually. So (laughs) I'm going to say a massive thank you um, to Naomi for joining us tonight. Thank you, guys. Thank you for all the wonderful questions. It was, you know, really fun to sort of, I I often find out what I think about my books by answering questions about them. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and this is, this is that kind of conversation. So thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.